0: Welcome to the Everathlete Podcast, where we discuss performance in life and sport. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Smith, and I'm a coach to elite athletes, CEOs, and everyday humans. In this show, we discuss performance training, longevity, and stories for personal growth. Before we dive into the show today, I want to remind you of the important role that you play in the success and growth of this show. If you enjoy the content that we're bringing through these episodes, please subscribe to the show, share it with your friends, and if you can, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. What's up and welcome to the show. Today, we're joined by a very special guest. Her name is Roxy. And she is a professional in-person and online mountain bike skills coach who has a keen sense for breaking down complex skills on the bike. Roxy has amassed an online following of hundreds of thousands of athletes who tune into her guidance for on-bike coaching tips as well as her unique focus on the connection between athletic progression and personal growth. I personally found Roxy through her Instagram page and was not only blown away by her easy to follow instructions for bike training, but also by her insight on personal development. So I reached out to her to see if I could get her on the pod and am stoked that we had a chance to sit down together to discuss all things life and sport. Let's dive in. (music) Roxy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I'm really excited to chat with you and pick your brain, not only on mountain bike skills, but also the coaching and learning process that we go through as athletes and also as people. Um, As we get things started, I would love to have you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background as a coach and the story of how you became a professional mountain bike skills coach?
1: Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I feel very, very honored and I'm super grateful to be here. Um, So my background, it started a little bumpy, I would say, because I started to ride mountain bikes and um, I followed a few tips that made me crash. So I had a very bumpy start. I crashed a lot and I'm a person I'm a very inquisitive person so I ask lots of questions and the questions that I asked no one could really answer them and that's why I actually became a coach to answer probably to answer my own questions and that's how I started coaching and then I um, just started giving beginners one-on-one coaching and then I noticed that this background I had with all the crashes and all the fear that built up through the crashes is actually what makes me a very uh, empathetic coach and also a good coach because because I was able to answer questions that not many other people were able to answer. So this the problem of what I had when I started actually then became one of my strengths.
0: What was the problem?
1: Well, um, for one thing, the problem is, well, was um, or what made it hard for me was that I was, that I'm a very petite rider. So I'm 158 centimeters, which is 5'1". And I am um, I wouldn't say well, I'm not the type of person who just charges at it and lets the bike roll a lot. So I was very careful at riding. And of course, being careful is good, but it is maybe sometimes also a little limiting. So the answers I got to how, I, how can I just ride this section and then the answer was let it roll um, didn't work. And that's why I had the problem of not writing things that I probably could have even written. Then when I did try, that didn't work out. So that was the problem. And that was also, in retrospect, actually um, the gift why I became a coach.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, I've seen some of your content surrounding, like you put out a video called uh, What Women Want, What Women Really Want. And it was basically a description of of things that, when I've spoken to the female writers that I work with, some of the advice that they get for taking on technical terrain or new skills, um, particularly ones that involve some sort of confrontation with fear or some sort of elevated risk. Oftentimes there is advice given that is not totally practical or resonant with real female riders who are either smaller in stature or just don't resonate or connect with the advice that they're being given. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know that you have some really good opinions and wisdom surrounding that topic, particularly for women.
1: Well, absolutely. Some examples for this are just go fast and pull up, or the bike knows, or just go fast enough, you'll be fine, um, and just ride it out. Those things do work, so I'm not saying they are generally bad advice or always wrong. For some people, they do work, especially riders who learned this sport as a kid, for example, or people who uh, have a lot of physical strength. They will mostly work out. But if you don't have a lot of physical strength, and we women do t- like normally have less physical strength than men do, then um, it will not work, or for example, if you're very petite, just think about it, the bike weighs almost the same for you and for me. So of course, in relation to the body, the bike weighs a lot more for me as a woman than for a man. So of course, these things don't work for women. And because of this, because they they subconsciously know this, that it won't work, because of this, they usually ask questions and they need more than these tips. And what they then obviously want is a guy who, for one thing, shows empathy, understands this, and allows them the time to practice and allows them a safe learning zone where they can actually work their way their way up step by step and start to build that competence. Well, both the competence, but also the confidence. And that's what it actually boils down to, that we need time to build confidence through competence and not just through... Tips that may work for some people and not for everyone.
0: Yeah. And I think that those boundaries are often reached with women, but there are so many male riders that go through very similar experiences. And I think once you reach that boundary of coaching where, you know, if the coaching stops at that singular answer of, you know, let the bike do the work or kind of these vague Responses that do work for a large percentage of people, I think that it opens the door for an excellent coach and a nuanced coach to further communicate potentially alternative avenues to get an athlete to actually execute on the skill, which is something that you clearly do so well. So can you talk a little bit about the path that you've taken as a coach and the athletes that you currently work with? What does your day-to-day look like as a coach?
1: Well, one thing that I really specialize on and maybe that does differentiate my program from many others is that I've acknowledged how the brain works and how the body works. And no one learns complex movements, well, not adults, within one or two days. That's just like, I mean, you're a strength coach. That's just like, I would believe I'm going to go to the gym like twice a year, and then I'm going to have huge biceps. It doesn't work. It's just not the way nature works. So you know that what belongs to it is persistence and that's why I only work with people long-term. I don't offer one-day skills clinics, I don't offer two-hour bunny hop specials or something like that, because of course they do help and they're fun, but I don't think they address the nature of how people and brains really work. So I work with my athletes for at least three to four months, and um, I do most of this work online, so they get their lessons, they They work with these lessons and they can optionally send me videos for feedback and then they get the feedback always personalized to them because that's the next thing that I think the, well, many coaches don't look at that. Of course, movements need to be adapted to the specific person. Like I'm very short with 5'1", I have a different I have shorter legs and arms, so different leverage. So I will need to extend my arms and legs much more than someone who is 6'8 or who weighs 100 kilograms. I don't know how much that is in pounds. (laughs) But um, what matters is seeing the athlete as an individual person and seeing how you need to adapt the moves for them to work. And that's what I love doing because I think – that's also the beauty of life, that everyone is so authentic and so individual. And once we've acknowledged that and every person has found their authenticity, that's where real growth starts. And that's why I always combine mental training with physical training, because I don't think we can see them as separate entities. For me, the mind and the body They are so interwoven, you can't just train one without training the other.
0: I fully agree with your sentiment around coaching and and many of the things that you've stated are parallel with strength training and rehab and the things that we do with off-bike training. And I, I do fully agree that there is a deep connection between physical skill development and really just our physical performance overall and the mental side of things and the way that we see ourselves and our competency, the way that we problem solve, the way that we address failure. Can you talk about some of the fundamental things that you cover with athletes from a mental standpoint as you step forward with them with physical training?
1: Well, one thing I definitely cover is what you already said, the topic failure, that Many people see failure as this undesired side effect, but actually it's a necessity to learn. And that's why as a coach, you need to create a safe learning environment where failures don't have negative consequences. So that is one thing that I um, encourage my riders to start to see failure differently, and that is mostly a mental game, and then to adjust their training to actually make failure consequence-free because only then you're actually in a learning zone and you can focus on the things that you don't yet know. If you have negative consequences or if there are negative consequences, um, or possible negative consequences, then you're actually in a performance zone. And that's, um, well, learning doesn't take place in a performance zone. In a performance zone, in your brain, the areas that are activated are those areas of movements that you can already perform. So these are movement patterns that have already ingrained themselves in your brain. And people think that they can just go out and ride trails and improve on trails, However the first point is really noticing one that you need to focus on specific movements off the trail two you need to start seeing failure as this super important uh, necessity to learn and three you need a safe learning environment to put yourself in that learning zone to make failures to be happy to make um, have well to make errors in general and then to have that persistence to keep going with those failures because you know that they accelerate you're learning immensely. The second thing I work on with my athletes a lot is um, highlighting and actually for the first time realizing the negative self-talk loops you have in your mind. A lot of people have so much negative self-talk. We have over 50,000 thoughts a day and a lot of people, this is science I'm referring to, have up to 80% negative self-talk and since 95% of these thoughts we have come every day if you think, so these are habitual thoughts, 95% of the thoughts we have in general are habitual thoughts. And if the majority of them are negative, you cannot expect a positive outcome. So I know this always sounds like, oh, I can't always think positive. That's not the point. But the point is that if you're thinking negatively, you cannot have a positive outcome. So you need to start changing your thoughts, which then changes your perception, which then changes your reality, which then changes your outcome and then changes your your life. So it's a cycle that starts with the thoughts. And taking that responsibility is about also having the ability to respond. That's the beauty about the world, responsibility. It's ability to respond. So once you have the responsibility for your thoughts, you can change your thoughts. And that's when everything in your life changes, not only training.
0: Mm, I love that. I mean, I know that in my own life, I've gone through periods of time where, whether through difficult external circumstances or personal failures or whatever they may be, have certainly gotten myself into a thought loop that is so exhausting and wrought with friction towards the 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 path that I want to head down. And I know how challenging it is to make adjustments in that thought pattern. Can you talk about maybe a a circumstance in your life where you shifted from a negative thought pattern or negative thought loop and made an adjustment to a more positive one and what the outcome of that was?
1: Yeah. I know I'm I'm putting you
0: on the spot, so that might be a little (laughs) bit tricky.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to think of a specific example that is bike related, but funny enough, I have an example from yesterday because right now I'm learning to skateboard and I'm a complete beginner and I'm making a complete fool of myself, but um, I was at the pump track learning to skateboard and these Three guys come and they start skateboarding and the one guy says it's his first day ever on a skateboard and this is my second day so it's not like I'm an expert or something but still I'm there and going oh my god they're going to come and see me and I look so stupid and then they start and they did the same exercise as I do so just roll around on the car park but then this guy he just gets into the pump track and he rides the entire loop and I don't know if you've ever ridden a skateboard but riding a pump track especially berms is incredibly challenging on a skateboard because it's super wobbly. So I look at him and I'm like, okay, I've been trying to ride these stupid berms for about an hour now. And I this is my second day on my skateboard. So I should be able to do this. So I get into this negative self loop, look at the guy. And it's like, I can't believe it. Look, he's, he's not even as muscular as I am. And he, he's not as coordinated as I am. How can he just ride it? So I start blaming myself, comparing myself and saying, this is not possible, whatever. So, and then I literally, in my mind, took this little timeout thing. So I, I, sometimes it's either a timeout that I imagine, or it's a huge buzzer, which I just go bing. So, and then I say, no, you're not going to listen to these thoughts. So I literally looked at them, looked at the thoughts. I imagined them on a huge billboard and said, okay, you're too stupid. Look at the guy. You're not as good as him. Uh, Why can't you do it? You should be able to do this. So these four things alone, they're not fair. They're not fair to tell to me. I mean, it's my second day. Even if he's doing this better, who gives? So uh, um, then I decided to change these thoughts and say, okay, it's totally all right That I'm taking the time I need because I know I'm important to myself. I know I don't want to crash. Maybe this guy doesn't care. And I don't know. I'm not here to judge. But I'm just going to take my time. And I'm going to have fun because I'm, after all, I'm here to have fun. I'm not here to prove myself to anyone. So I'm learning this to learn and to have fun during it. Uh, during the process and that's how i started to change my thoughts started to get more into a positive mindset and started having fun again and that could have turned around 100% to the wrong direction i could have thrown the skateboard in the ground and left uh, but i decided to to take it as a possibility to grow and also to to once again develop more empathy for my clients when they get into this negative self-talk loop because it happens to everyone. And it's not about not having these negative thoughts. It's about getting out of them faster and faster every time.
0: That's a great story and one that I certainly connect with for many reasons. But I do want to just remark that I think the practice of stepping outside of your wheelhouse as a coach – So stepping out of the thing that you teach people to do and do at a very high level is an essential practice. It's an essential tool to actually creating a bridge between you and the lessons that you're trying to communicate to the athletes that you work with. Um, And so, you know, in my own life, I think about, you know, sport related experiences like this where I used to rock climb quite a bit uh in my mid 20s and i used to work in a rock climbing gym actually and routinely in the gym i'd be practicing my bouldering and uh climbing my route and and without exception you know failing miserably uh i wasn't a tremendous climber but pretty much every day that i was in there i'd be working on a route and it wouldn't be a super advanced route but i would be i would try and fail try and fail And in between my climbs, you know, you'd have these like a six-year-old female just walk up to the route that I've been failing on over and over and she would flash the route without any challenge at all. I mean, and for me, I'm this like 25-year-old guy. I'm sitting there like, oh, my God. (laughs) And I would immediately start going into this downward spiral. The same thing has been true in a lot of the other sports that I've taken on, whether it's trail running, surfing, cycling, whatever it may be. And it's taken a lot of personal work to step outside of the natural tendency to compare yourself to others. And I think when we start doing that, regardless of of who it is and what sport we're playing, um, you know, there's a quote that says comparison is the thief of joy. But I think in reality, that is true. But it's also true that comparison is the thief of constructive forward progress. And when we start comparing ourselves to other people and focusing solely on the fact that we're not them or we can't achieve what they're able to achieve, we, we steal that attention that we could be contributing towards actually refining our craft and actually making forward progress for us. And we waste it on focusing on someone else. And I think that that's a, a very important lesson, not only to carry as a coach, but also as an athlete. And so I think that, that it's so cool that you're taking on skateboarding because skating is, is a very challenging sport and s- seemingly similar to mountain biking in some ways, but so, so different in the actual execution of things. Um. Can you talk a little bit about some of the the biggest challenges that you've had since you are a beginner in skating and we are discussing this topic already. Can you talk about some of the the most limiting beliefs that new riders will come to you with, um, whether they're, you know, masters athletes or young athletes or whatever they may be. The ones that are new to mountain biking, can you talk a little bit about some of those limiting beliefs that they usually will come to you with, and the things that you need to help them break through?
1: Absolutely. But one thing I want to talk, well, first address is what you just said because it's such an important point. For, for one thing, is always going into that learning mindset again, and and learning new things as a coach is super important. But also. You also said wasting our time on that comparison. And just as you said, comparison can also drive us positively. It can, well, anything actually that feels frustrating in the first moment is just our ego taking a hit. So it's the egos like, hey, 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 I'm here and I don't like this and I'm not as cool as I thought I was. And we can either listen to that ego and go down to the negative spiral or we can leverage the ego and use it to drive change, just as you said. So the ego is always, is just another tool we can use either using it in a negative way or letting, us, letting the ego use us in a negative way, or we can take again, responsibility and control and say, all right, this comparison, I don't like it. How can I change it? How can I use it to drive me instead of how can I use it to spiral me down that way? I don't want to go. So super interesting. I just wanted to yeah, add to that.
0: That's, that's a great point.
1: But let's get back to the mistakes you asked me. So the biggest mistakes I see in beginners, um, especially when it comes to mountain biking, because I think mountain biking is different than skateboarding and also probably rock climbing because the bikes have become so amazingly good. So basically, if you are strong, as in physically strong, and you have a mindset of, I'm gonna be able to do this, then you can ride a lot nowadays, much more than you would be able to rock climb on your first day, and much more than you would be able to skateboard on your first day. So I think the dangers of mountain biking are a little different, and one of the dangers I see there is that people um, want to progress too fast and actually do progress too fast. So they're progressing too quickly And then they're waiting too long to refine their foundation because it works for so long. So the moment they stagnate, the moment they hit a plateau, it's already too late. They've been practicing their fundamental errors all this time, repeating them, practicing them. So once they've actually hit a plateau, they already automatized these errors that are causing them to hit the plateau. So if they would start to work on their foundation, on their fundamentals before they hit the plateau, then they would progress so much quicker. So that's the first one is progressing too quickly and not working on your foundational skills straight away. And the second one is expecting unrealistic progress. Um, So I think generally nowadays with social media, it can also go two ways. A lot of times the, the stuff we see there is looks so amazingly easy and the stuff that get, gets likes is the stuff that looks easy but is at the same time spectacular. So people think they need to be doing these stunts to be cool and to be a real mountain biker, quote-unquote. So they start to want to work towards these things far too early. And I see that a lot, that people book me literally beginner riders and like, hey, I want to jump, I want to drop, I want to do a bunny hop. And these are not beginner skills. None of this is. I know some coaches claim a bunny hop is a basic, and it maybe is if you're a BMX rider or a dirt jumper. But for mountain biking, for an adult learning to mountain bike, a bunny hop is a complex skill. It will take time. So that's the second error I see, that people just expect unrealistic progress and want to learn the things. Their ego tells them to learn and not the skills they may need to learn to become an efficient and safe rider. And the third one is, and I definitely did this when I started, is focusing on the equipment rather than the skills. And of course, a good bike is amazing. A good bike will feel good. And yes, you can ride more if you have more travel on your bike and a really, really expensive bike. So you will hit that plateau a little later but you will still hit a plateau and you will probably still hurt yourself if you don't have the skills. So I would say those are the three most common mistakes I see when it comes to mindset and to just bringing that learning mindset or not.
0: I mean, those are all things that I think that I've probably run into along my mountain biking journey. Uh, But you did mention with new riders and equipment being so good that the equipment can kind of cover up any deficiencies in actual foundational skills. And I think, you know, in, in my line of work, this is very true. The most elite athletes that I've ever worked with, I mean, there are some of them that have just terrible fundamentals with some basic movement patterns. So, you know, especially the more specialized an athlete becomes uh, the less foundational they can become sometimes And if they run into a chronic injury or something like that, we have to rewind back to the most fundamental aspects of movement uh, and restore those in order to progress them back to their elite performance. Same thing goes for strength work, where a lot of athletes have incredible natural strength and capacity. However, that only carries you so far. And if you rely on it too much, without actually executing on good form and excellent fundamentals, I mean, it is such a surefire way to get injured down the road. And I see this time and time and time again. And I know that you work with a lot of advanced writers as well, and you might run into the same thing in regards to... An athlete having so much natural capability that they ignore some of the foundational keys or the simple keys, the things that are not sexy and are easy to look past. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you help more advanced riders work through? Uh, and how you kind of communicate those fundamental or foundational principles or how resonant those are to even the most advanced riders.
1: So I absolutely agree. And um, I think that's also the challenge about couples riding together, because just as you said, if you have a lot of strength, you can compensate for faulty movements with strength. So especially men do that sometimes or also strong women. But if you have a lot of strength and the person you're riding with doesn't have a lot of strength, then that definitely definitely um, causes a disbalance and then um, causes the the rider with less strength to plateau or to just not ride sections earlier so what i see a lot when i'm working with advanced riders is also what you said that generally i i notice that the errors or the reason why they're not progressing anymore is in the most foundational moves and there the problem is that they often don't acknowledge this and they don't have that they don't bring this openness to regress to progress and to go slow to go fast. They just need they they think they need to go faster and faster and faster and uh, ride harder and harder and harder trails So literally they're again putting themselves in the performance zone all the time and they don't bring that openness to go into the learning zone again um, and often <laughs> they're looking for the missing puzzle piece somewhere at the top of the pyramid, rather than regressing to the bottom of the pyramid and fixing the issue that is actually there. And um, what I always do when I ride with, or or when I work with very advanced athletes, is slow them down, uh, let them ride slower, and then they will notice that they can't compensate for their missing fundamentals with speed <laughs> because we do that of course speed does cover up and speed is your friend until it's not so freed, speed can can make you rescue sections that you're not really fit for until the complications become too many at a time that's when you can't just compensate with speed anymore so that's the first thing I do when I work with very advanced training um, riders in general like I was training a lady for the Olympics in cross-country mountain biking and we worked on slow speed skills a lot and if you then look at who won the Olympics or the female Olympics cross-country the three ladies who did won all of them were great at slow speed skills so the especially cross country, is becoming more and more and more technical. So you need to be able to ride slowly and with finesse. And those are actually the fundamentals that every rider does need, but most people do omit.
0: You are so right. And uh, I think uh, I love the analogy of stepping out of the performance zone and into the learning zone is a very hard journey to step into i think especially for athletes not only ones that are at the elite level but also the elite level with a lot of pressure because the higher up you climb on that ladder the more pressure you feel to stay where you are and any regression feels like you might be submitting to the idea that you'll again be in an elite class or you're at an elite class and you want to stay there and you just want to learn it can be really challenging to Feel like you're stepping back into you know things that are more rudimentary and are more basic and obvious, and I think that that doesn't just go for. I mean, I see this all the time in, especially strength work, especially elite athletes, particularly in the male gender category, uh, struggle with this a lot, and uh, uh, you know, with quite a few of the athletes that I work with who are more experienced we go through a process of working on very slow tempo movements and isometric holds and different things just to create more connection to the nuances of movement. And I think especially with, with more elite athletes from what I've seen from a strength perspective is you don't always need to amplify in the difficulty of the movement. You more so need to amplify the attention to the detail of how to execute the most fundamental things about foundational movements in the best way possible. Uh, And so that's a lot of the coaching process that I go through. And I would imagine it's very similar to you because the more that you can do those redundant skills, it's like that there's a misconception about excellence. I feel where excellence is, is not a multiplication or exponential growth in diversity and exciting movements. It's a commitment to very redundant things done well with extreme attention to detail over and over and over. Um, so I fully agree with you. And I know that you work with such a diverse population that sometimes it can be difficult to communicate the message in different ways to people that are at very different places on their timeline, whether it's age or skill level or whatever it may be. I'm sure that you are very busy and kept very entertained with all of the, uh, all of the lessons that you do need to communicate. But stepping back from actual coaching for a moment, I know that you have a big social following. And I just wanted to talk to you about social media and the way that social media has impacted the space of coaching and athletics overall. Can you talk about some of the pros and cons of social media and how it's impacted not only your business, but but also coaching and athleticism in general?
1: Well, on the one side, just as I said, the, the downside is that Things that are super, super complex look so easy and are now so readily available that they've lost their spectacularity. So people stop seeing things that are really spectacular for what they really are because you see so much of it. So that's definitely the danger of social media. And also I think the downside is that you don't see the work that's behind it. You just see the result. So of course, like a pro athlete will not share 400 hours of practicing. He's just going to share that one attempt that went right. (laughs) And so everyone thinks like, oh, yay! I'm just going to go outside and do a triple backflip and it's going to work out. But it's just not the way it is. On the other side, I do believe that it motivates people to keep growing or it can motivate people to keep working on their skills and to keep optimizing their potential so there are two sides to it what I generally think and that's why I like Instagram a lot and that's why I grew there because I think Instagram is a much more positive environment so I get I do get hate you get hate everywhere it's normal (laughs) but I would say it's about one percent and for example TikTok or something is like very negative um, because probably the people there are very young and they don't see it So um, social media can impact the coaching business very positively if you have such a great page like you do, for example. I love your Instagram. It's amazing because you can share so much knowledge with people who otherwise would probably not find you. And that's actually the reason why I started all my channels. I never wanted to become a YouTuber or Instagrammer or influencer or whatever. I just wanted to share value. Because I believe that every person on this planet is here to share something. And if we, well, we can't change the world by changing the world, we can change the world by changing ourselves, by being. Our full authentic self, and this will give bring light into the world. And that's why I started the social media channels because I wanted to um, share value and make it re- readily accessible to people who don't have access to pro coaching. So, with pages like yours and mine, where we share mostly value, or with my pages 100% value, um, and yours, I would say 99.999, if not 100, <laughs> then, um that's the upside of it, that a lot more people have access to these things, they just would have never considered, they would have never thought about these things. And that's definitely the big, big, big advantage of social media. And those are the things that I can think of now at the top of my head. I'm sure when I think about it later, I'll come up with lots more. (laughs) But that's um, for now.
0: Yeah. And just to expand on that a little bit, I I think that My vision or opinion on social media has dramatically changed over the years. And as a coach, I have kind of this uh, natural disposition to not wanting the limelight to be on me. I've always been committed to helping other people. And that's always been, you know, whether it's in helping people through rehab or performance training or whatever it is, my most natural vantage point is in taking steps to help other people shine light on themselves as opposed to me. And I think as in a service-based business, that's usually the vantage point that coaches and therapists will see themselves through. And one thing that's happened with me over the last couple of years is really starting to, because I had a very negative outlook on social media and just kind of self-promotion in general for a long time. But the transition that I made into the value proposition of, I'm just going to put out things that I think will bring value to the world, as opposed to just showing myself off, it's more so going to be, it's still about the other people. It's still about growing the community and improving people's lives through the simplest things, you know. And that's really been a big change that I've made over the last couple of years that's That's actually brought so much positivity, not only to me, but also the ever athlete brand and the outreach that you can have through social media. If you approach it in the right way and if you maintain a positive environment on your page, which I think it's imperative to, I think there, it's so easy to go on social media and criticize other variations of coaching. And criticize other techniques and these different things that you may or may not agree with. But one thing that I've really focused on, especially in the last couple of years, is strictly focusing on my message. Like, what do I want to communicate as opposed to trying to devalue other people's message? I just want to continue to communicate mine. And that's been such an eye-opening experience. And it's really opened the door to have connections and relationships with people all over the world, which I know that you have experienced as well. But I think we'll step back into our our coaching discussion for a moment. Can you talk a little bit about some of the connections between mountain bike skill development and real personal growth? I know that you do quite a bit of mindset training with your athletes and we talked about this before, but can you talk about, you know, maybe it's not just mountain biking but just skill development in general and how that pertains to actually growing it as a person in life because I know that you've done that on your own and you help people do that every day. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Skill development and personal growth, they both require persistence and regular practice. And that's why I think skill development in a way enables personal growth because it sets the basis and also vice versa. So I believe that anyone who will be very, very successful at developing his or her skills will probably also through doing this, develop more persistence and also success at personal growth. And that's what I've seen also when I work with people and their skill development is not working out, that then in personal growth sector, it's not working out either. So everything is interrelated. And often people only become aware of the necessity for personal growth and their potentials for personal growth by working on their skills. So it's kind of like this back door to personal growth and also to looking at what drives you, at your values, at what your authenticity actually is. And that's why I love working on well we're working with my athletes on both, because many people would never really start to work on their mindset or personal growth because they think, I'm fine, I don't need it. But once they start looking at the issues they have on a bike, they notice how this transfers to their life. And then they start working on that, uh, on the skill development part, which then transfers to the personal development part. And I already said this before, I think one of the most important lessons in life we all need to face is finding our own authenticity and our own light and what we bring to this world. And once that we start going down this path, we notice that everything else just becomes brighter. Um, Just like, as you said, in social media, we can either go out and spread hate and devalue others, but at the end of the day, we just have limited energy and we have limited time and you can either choose To spend this by devaluing people or you can spend it to value yourself and people so if we start really working on this and start acknowledging that nothing is well that everything is connected that's how skill development often causes much deeper development in the personal growth um, area and vice versa so Just as I said, everything is connected. We cannot, I mean, you as a physiotherapist know this, you can't look at the knee without looking at the ankle and the hip. And the same is with skills. You can't look at only your motor skills if you're not looking at your mental skills and once you start looking at it that's where already personal growth takes place because people start realizing how much responsibility and how much ability they have to respond to anything in their life and how much control they can take over their life and get out of that victim mentality go into the creator mentality to start to bring value to their own life which then brings value to the entire world
0: yeah i cannot tell you how many times. I have been dealing with something in my personal life and simultaneously I've been confronted with that same problem or at least the same tools needed to resolve the problem within my athletic journey. It is unbelievable how often those things go hand in hand. And additionally, there are so many things that I have experienced in my personal life And persevered through there that directly apply to some of the experiences in sport. So if I'm going through challenges in sport or trying to refine skills or just going through a grueling training session, I'll think about things that I've experienced in my life and the way that I've developed self-talk. And a lot of that self-talk has been developed in my personal life and contributed to my athletic life and vice versa. Can you talk about, let's get personal with you for a moment. Can you talk about how mountain biking, and you've had a pretty prolific journey through mountain biking? You know, you started out going through a really challenging initial path where you're trying to learn these skills, you're failing. And generally, failure in mountain biking is physically painful and emotionally painful as well. You're looking for answers, you're not necessarily finding them. You have to create this path for yourself where not only are you having to develop the skills and do that, but you're also having to learn how to develop those skills on your own in some ways. I think that that type of path and that type of journey is one that has tremendous value and tremendous growth personally. Can you talk about how your journey in mountain biking has contributed to your own personal life?
1: I believe that probably the biggest, well, the biggest Growth factor for me was noticing how every challenge becomes a stepstone. So, how everything negative that happens brings a huge positive in the long run. You just need to work, or you just need to wait actually, and then to work on looking at it. So shifting your focus. And before I was mountain biking, um, I had a bigger personal struggle because I was was strongly anorexic. So I almost really starved myself to death until I noticed that it's the self-talk that is causing me to do this. So I had already started with that. And I think without mountain biking, I wouldn't have been able to pursue that because it may have happened that I would have again, fallen into the bad loop. But what I noticed, just as you said, the problems you have in real life, they transfer to writing. So of course there, once I started writing, I started getting back into the negative self loop because my journey wasn't done yet. So through mountain biking, I noticed, okay, this is what you need to look at. You need to start looking at your thoughts. You see, you need to start really working with self-acceptance, working with bringing that kindness and The kindness you already bring to others, start bringing the kindness to yourself. And through that, I was able to become the coach, but also the psychological counselor I am today, because it was so challenging. Because then I started going back to university, getting my mental training degrees, getting the psychological counselor and all that. If I wouldn't have had all these challenges, I would never be there and I would never be able to help so many people and to guide them to find their authenticity, which then in turn allows them to bring their light into the world. So I'm guessing that that's probably the biggest life lesson that I've learned through mountain biking in general is that whatever happens, it happens for a reason. You just need to wait and you need to trust the process and you need to look at the thoughts, change the thoughts once they come and take control.
0: Can you talk about the thought loop process that you actually go through. Like what are the kind of the, the fundamental pieces of that? You've mentioned breaking the thought loop. And I would love to know maybe what you communicate with athletes in regards to... Because negative thoughts can... There, there are so many flavors of negative thoughts and limiting beliefs. What are some foundational ways that you can identify those and begin to change them? The
1: most foundational one is... I have this a lot with my athletes, is that I make them write down their thoughts. As soon as you, as I said, you have about 50,000 thoughts a day, you're not going to listen to them because they keep coming and 95% of them are habitual. So even if they are negative, you're at some point you're just going to zone out. You're not going to listen to them anymore. But once you start focusing on them again... And then you start writing them down. As soon as you have them on a sheet of paper, that's when you start to see how real they are. So that's the first thing, writing down the thoughts. And then question two is, would you say this to a person you like? Not yourself, person you like. Would you say this to a person you like or better, love? And then 99% 99 of the people say, No, I would never, ever say that to a person I like. So why do you deserve to say that to yourself? And then I literally tell my clients to cross it out, to cross it out and write down what they would like to think instead. And then once you start breaking down this process, usually... It's about 10 to 15 thoughts that keep coming back, of course, in different variations, but they're just versions of one another. So you have these 15 things written down on a piece of paper. You've crossed them out. You've replaced them by something you want to think instead. And then it's about building habits. About every time that thought pops up, it will pop up. Obviously, it's a habit. Your brain is used to doing that. You take out your sheet of paper and you think the new thing. And usually after about two or three days, people already have memorized what they want to think instead. instead. So the old thought will still keep popping up, but then they can say the new thing. And it takes about 21 to 28 days usually to form a new habit. And you just need to work through that phase. (laughs) Again, it's about persistence. It's called mental training and not mental magic for a reason that you need to work with it and be persistent with it, uh, just like you need to be persistent with any other training.
0: Yeah, and I think when I listen to you talk about that, I think a lot about what some people think that it takes to maintain peace in their lives. And my wife and I just went to this incredible place in Big Sur, California. So on the coast of California, there's this place called the Esalen Institute. And the Esalen Institute is this basically like a magical adult summer camp where you can go and meditate. They have all these yoga workshops and, you know, personal development workshops. It's right on the coast. It's on these cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. They've got this. It's insane. I mean, it's just this amazing place. And I've thought quite a bit about. The maintenance of the peace that you can acquire in an environment like that and how to actually hold on to that in your own life when you have less control over the things that you're going to encounter. And I think that the centerpiece of maintaining that element of solitude and peace and control over your life is an ability to confront the things that will inevitably come up. And the practice of having the tools and using the tools to attack negative thought loops when they come about is essential. It's it's one of those foundational pieces because a lot of people think that they need to go to the Esalen Institute in order to maintain happiness in their life. And really, the, the Esalen Institute is an amazing place. I love going there. It's the second time that I've been there. However, it is a synthetic environment. It's basically a bubble that when you leave, if you do not go back to your life, whether it's in sport or not, with tools to find your own peace and actually combat some of the negative things that will come about, you will never be able to achieve peace. And I think a lot of people use meditation and all these different tools and sometimes will, will use avoidance tactics to try and find peace in their life and those are always short-lived. But maintaining the tools and practice of controlling your mind regardless of what's going on and this comes with varying degrees of difficulty you know there are times in our lives where things are peaceful and it's easier to achieve this very nice solitude but there are other times when it's much more difficult and you know we're going through experiences of trauma or whatever it may be and And it is substantially more difficult. But if you don't have the tools to use in either of those circumstances, you will fall short. And it's, we can't always wait for life to be simpler or easier for us to be in control. And I think that, you know, these dot, these dots that you're helping athletes connect are so valuable for that reason because it's, it's maintaining control regardless of what's going on. You can control the way that you handle some of these thoughts that come up. You can't always control the thoughts that do arise, but you can control how you relate to those and whether or not you allow them to continue on. So I think what you do is fantastic, not only as a coach in terms of, you know, breaking down complex skills and helping people progress in their physical journey, but much more so, you know, that is a an avenue for us to develop. Fundamentally, as people, and I just think that that connecting those dots is so essential, and it's something that you clearly do so well. And I think I really think that I've asked you more than my fair share of questions, but I do have one more. Um, I'm curious if there's anything that's been on your mind recently as a coach that you wanted to riff on or, or chat about a little bit. Has there been anything that you've noticed with athletes recently, or? your mental performance coaching clients recently that you want to discuss?
1: Well, one thing I definitely wanted to answer also is what you said before at the bottom line is you really need the tools. So tools is exactly what I, what I want to uh, give my clients and what I give my clients with both my online courses, but also in person clients is giving them practical tools to always get back to that point of control, because you put that so wonderfully. It's not about controlling what happens, it's about controlling how you react to it. And with practical tools, it can get easier and easier. And also knowing that these challenging life situations you're in, that those are the ones that will cause personal growth. So those Two things I really wanted to add to what you just said because you said it really, really nicely and the tools are what matters. Coming back to your question, what I've noticed lately is definitely, and maybe it's also a side effect of social media, is that I do see that the general mountain biking scene is becoming more and more ego-driven. Uh, as I said in the beginning, m- m- more people wanna ha- m- want to perform the stunts, the big, the spectacular moves. And they kind of lose contact to their themselves, to their motivation, why they actually started mountain biking. Just as we said before, most problems we have in life, they then transfer to mountain biking. So if, for example, someone is super, super stressed in their life, they usually start mountain biking to wind down, to find something relaxing. But then suddenly they start mountain biking and they start racing and then they start uh, adding even more stress in something that they actually started to take away the stress. So that's something that I've noticed that is, in a way, it's making me sad, because I think we, we have so much control, and we can take so much control about over these things but many many people like to give away the responsibility and like to go into that victim mentality of saying oh no this is stressing me out that's stressing me out and then I'm stressed because of that race but at the end of the day they chose to sign up for that race so maybe just giving the world a little more awareness for how you choose your stresses and whether the stress is doing you good or not of course we need stress to grow in strength training you're not going to grow if you keep just taking one pound and doing your biceps curls with one pound but um you want to add the stress and the same is in life you will get don't give away my
0: secret roxy
1: (laughs) sorry (laughs) (laughs) and the same applies to life at the end of the day you need to add stress to keep growing but Of course, if you're noticing that the stress you've added is too much, then it's much smarter to move away back and move away or move into what's doing you good. And I think that many people could actually do that, especially riders, mountain bikers who are 60 and aged over, they start and they do, they start because for them crashing is, is much more dangerous when you start, when I mean, and recovering will take much longer. So why do they really need to do that? Just asking yourself, I think will help. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And is it really doing myself good? And also being aware of the fact that environment always trumps your willpower. So if you're writing with people who are pushing you beyond your limit, is this really the type of people you want to be writing? Or do you want to write with people who are pushing you towards what's doing you good?
0: I love that. You know, this resonates with, I think that I've talked about this on the podcast, but I have this conversation a decent amount in person with clients. And it's this idea of riptides. And a lot of people will you know, write down their values or do a vision setting session for the year at the beginning of the year, but don't really return to those things on a regular basis. And once you've identified your values, if you have done that, and if you haven't, then I think that it's very important that you take a moment to to actually explore that with yourself. Once you identify those values, you can dictate how you want sport to fit into your life in a much better way. Because What will always happen, whether it's in business, life, or sport, there will be people around you that have very different values, and sometimes they look the same, maybe they have the same skill level, Uh, maybe you guys really like the same coffee, but a lot of times we can get caught up in the riptides of other people's values and use those and superimpose those onto our own journey. And when we do that, we start following paths that were never meant for us and are not in alignment with who we are. And this happens as an athlete, and it it certainly happens with a lot of people that I talk to every single day. And ultimately, if you go down that path and you follow and, and slide into the riptide, you get pulled into an environment and a mental headspace that is incredibly stressful and very detrimental so I think it magnifies the the importance to identify your own value system and behave accordingly. So when you take on mountain biking, figure out why. What, what do you want to get out of mountain biking? Or what do you want to get out of any skateboarding or whatever sport you're taking on?
1: And it's actually super interesting because often when I do this value work with my clients, the values that drive them to mountain biking or whatever other sport it may be, may actually be different than their values at, in their profession or in their family. Because often it's exactly that, let's call it a position you're looking for. It's exactly that zoning out of your, your normal life that, that you may want to uh, look for at mountain biking. And that's why it's super important to do this for uh, different areas in your life. So I do this specifically for business, but also for mountain biking with my clients. And most clients notice that it's very different and then they go into their, their work much more deeply because they know, okay, this is not me and my family. These are my values at work and I'm following my values at work. And then they go out riding and notice, okay, no, the people I'm riding with, they don't share my values. So I'm going to look for a new crowd. And then they look at their values regarding their family. And again, they're different values. So we, sometimes we think we need to be this one person everywhere, but actually it's completely normal to have different not really personalities, but different values in different areas of our life. And then to stay true to them, we just need to find them and then stay true to them by noticing when the environment we're in is not doing as well. And I think that's the first step Mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't even look at it because as you say, you may have a lot of common things with these people and you may like them, but it's not only about that. This is about finding something that does yourself good. And at the end of the day, most people out there riding bikes or doing whatever sport are not doing it on a professional basis they are doing it to have fun so why are they stealing their fun by doing this with people uh, they don't really have the same values with so just as you said it's a super also a super nice image with the riptides
0: yeah and i also think just to to touch on one other thing that you mentioned is that how critical environment is And a lot of people, when they think about environment, confuse it with a physical space that you're in. But the environment is the input. It's the external input into your system. And your value system should be the filtration device with which you judge whether or not your environment is good for you. I strongly believe that the people that you spend time around, the things that you listen to, the things that you watch... All of the things that you ingest mentally, spiritually, emotionally are deeply impactful for the actions that you take.
1: Absolutely.
0: And as we said before, if you have that much friction all around you in the direction that you want to go... You have to be very thoughtful in the way that, that you actually set yourself up. And you might need to eliminate some of that friction by removing some of those people from your life or limiting your exposure to them or being very intentional and thoughtful about the way that you interact with them. And I think in, you know, athletic communities, this is a very challenging thing to do, but it's one thing that through this podcast, I certainly want to encourage people to do you know for people that are not riding or performing at a professional level the place that sport has in our lives should truly be for enhancement of our life overall and it's an opportunity not only to get a big rush of dopamine but also all the things that we've discussed today about skill development connection between that physical development and personal growth all these different things and additionally it can enhance us by giving us a good escape uh, from some of the duties that we have that we don't really have a choice over necessarily. Um, but I think that that's a, a very powerful vantage point to look at sport and one that I strongly encourage people to take. And so I, I fully agree with your thoughts, not only on skill progression, but also, you know, the mental side of things and the way that you've been helping people, not only in their sport, but their lives is remarkable. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you took the time to sit down and, and chat. And, you know, I'm sure that we'll do this again in the future. But I'm, I'm super, super thankful for the the wisdom and the gems that you've shared with us today.
1: Thanks, Matt. Thanks a lot. And one thing I would like to add to that is, you know, people keep talking about the algorithm, like YouTube algorithm, Instagram algorithm, whatever. whatever. <laughs> But we forget that there's an algorithm in life as well. And how we feed this algorithm changes or influences how our life turns out. And the algorithm is actually really easy to crack. It's all about you either comment negatively on the stuff you don't like and you get more of it, or you comment positively on the stuff you like and you get more of that. It sounds oversimple, but... Bottom line, this is how it works, both on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or whatever, and also in life. If you keep giving people hate, you're going to get back hate. If you walk around giving negativity to people, you're going to get back negativity. And a lot of people forget this. Also, that when you get hate or when you get criticism, that you know that... Praise makes you feel good, but criticism makes you better. So the way you deal with criticism can also be positive. So I think once we've, well, once I understood that, that's when my life became super positive. That when I started to really embrace criticism and actually like hate, because I knew it could improve me and I knew it didn't say anything about me, it just showed how unhappy or happy this person is and how he or she is feeding the algorithm, um, that... I think when a lot of people start following this algorithm rule that they can really start positively influencing their life in many ways.
0: I I mean, I agree with that so much. And I love the way that you put it because it's very resonant with so much of what's going on right now with, you know, our digital lives. But we forget the fact that we feed into that in a very real way in our life off screen. Over the 15 years that I've worked in health and wellness, I have interacted with, this doesn't just go for a life in health and wellness, but also just life in general, have interacted with a handful of serial victims and people that always find themselves victimized in any situation that they're in. And just to play off what you said, you create that. At some point, you create that for yourself. I think to to your point, The way that we put energy out into the world and the person that we choose to show up as, whether it's a victim, whether it's as a go-getter, whether it's committed to personal growth, whether it's committed to focusing on personal defeat, we generally will maintain the momentum of that energy wherever we're putting it. And I think that that's, you know, going back to what you talked about with breaking that mental loop is so important because a lot of people that are going through that emotional journey even people that are unknowingly victimizing themselves most often it is unknowingly most often it is they're just not totally aware that life could be different and it takes that step of breaking and this is why i think that sports can be so powerful because they actually give us this physical environment where it can change the way that we perceive and learn about ourselves. So learning how to bunny hop for the first time and the steps that it takes to actually break through on a bunny hop and the barriers that you run into along that journey, regardless of the skill, can change the way that you problem solve in your own mind and somehow seep their way into the way that we problem solve in our own personal journey. And this is why I think, you know, sports are very powerful. But also, just the idea of the energy that you put out into the world, there might be a different way for you to do that. And there might be a better way. And you might have a tremendously different outcome. And that goes for sport, it goes for life. You know, there's so many different analogies that we could use. But at the end of the day, I do think, you know, it is all about putting your best foot forward, putting your best, the best version of yourself out there. Um, and being committed to personal growth, whether you're getting negative feedback, positive feedback, whatever it may be, making sure that you are taking constructive, constructive steps forward to showing up as that best person over and over and over again, regardless of the environment, regardless of the people around you, the feedback that you're getting. It tends to have a really positive outcome for people like yourself. Before we wrap things up, how can people find you online? I'm sure that we're going to have a few people reaching out for coaching after this, um, but tell people where they can find you, not only on your website, but also on social.
1: So it's roxybike-coaching.com and ride and inspire on YouTube and roxybike coaching also on Instagram. And I also have a podcast which is called Ride and Inspire Podcast. And I'm super grateful to have had this conversation. And I'm looking forward to uh, keeping in touch with you, Matt, because you are such an amazing gift to the world. So thank you for being the way you are and bringing your your beautiful self to all of us.
0: Roxy, it is very mutual. I'm super excited not only to be in touch with you today, but for many, many days in the future. Thank you so much for all of your insight